The term horn section can mean so many different things, from a trumpet and a sax standing at the side of the stage to a 13-piece big band sitting in the middle. Two trumpets, one bone, three saxes is probably the sweet spot for me, but if the players are right, there isn't a bad combo out there. Welcome to Strong Songs, a podcast about music. I'm your host, Kirk Hamilton, and I'm so glad that you joined me for another year of talking about music with small horn sections, music with big horn sections, and sometimes music with medium horn sections. It's got to be a horn section is my point. This is a listener-supported show, totally independent, free from sponsorship or outside influence. It's just a thing that I make because I love making it. Thank you so much to everyone who is a patron or made a donation this year. I am really proud of everything that I made, and you made it possible for me to make it. On this episode, we're stepping into our short-term time machine for a look back at a year full of feral heavy metal, crooning country, tango rhythms, and Hylian folk songs. I know I'm excited, but I feel like we need a second opinion. So before we get into it, let's ask the horns what they think. again at the end of another year of strong songs year four to be particular which is always a wild thing to say out loud it was wild when i said year three and it was wild when i said year two it was even wild when i had completed just one year of the show back at the end of year one but it's hard to believe that i've been making the show for four years that i've made 100 episodes that last episode about the dark side of the moon of course was episode 100 it really just goes to show what's possible if you give yourself regular deadlines and then you just force yourself to meet them every two weeks, month after month. The road in the rearview mirror becomes longer and longer, and soon you have to really squint to see where you started. On this episode, I'm going to go back through all of the episodes that I ran in year four and share some thoughts on each one, a musical highlight, some aspect of the song or the music that stuck with me, something new that I learned or didn't manage to get to in the episode, just a way to revisit each of those episodes. And since I know there are a lot of you out there who haven't listened to every single episode or some of you who are new to the show, to also give a bit of a guide to the year that was to let you pick out what you might want to go back and listen to. Also talk some about my plans for next year since I'm going to be doing something different, focusing on some other creative projects for the first half of the year and bringing strong songs along for that. I'm excited about it, but yeah, more on that future stuff once we've finished our look back at the past. But enough preamble, let's get into it. Flashing back to the very start of year four, January of 2022, with an episode on what else but the hardest hitting rock this side of Metal Mountain, Mastodon's Blood and Thunder! (laughs) Oh man. This was a fun way to kick off the year, easily the hardest hitting song I've ever covered on Strong Songs, which gave me a chance to talk about some things that I don't normally get a chance to talk about. High gain guitar playing, the nature of distortion, metal vocal technique, and above all, how a band like Mastodon can rock like they do. <laughs> like how they harness that slamming pulse that turns a crowd into a single, powerful organism. 
So one thing I got out of making this episode was a more refined appreciation for Mastodon drummer Bran Daler and the various ways that he enhances the power of whatever the band is doing in a given section of a song. This song hits like a Mack truck right out of the gate, and a big reason for that is the way that Daler has situated the groove with the snare landing on one and three as opposed to a backbeat two and four like you'd hear in a lot of rock songs. I had a good time with the recreations on this episode and in particular in illustrating the way that that one decision on the drums really impacts the groove by playing both versions, a version with the snare on one and three and a version with a more traditional backbeat on two and four. And also, I was just happy with how these recreations sounded. No matter how many guitar lessons I take, part of me will always be a jazz saxophonist. And I mean, it's fun to crank up the gain and really hit it. So this is my recreation with the drums, the way that Brand Daler actually plays them on the record with the snare on one and three. Bah, 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 like that. But I also did a recreation with the snare on two and four, which really changes the way this song grooves. You know, it sounds fine, but it's a bouncier, more straightforward feel, and it's just not as heavy or specific as what Daler actually played. So that was just one example of many on the episode about how thoughtful and musical this band is and how well they assemble their songs. This episode was also where I introduced my first crack at a special jingle for any time that I talk about music theory, and I didn't wind up adopting it for the rest of the year, but I still think there's something in this idea, and I'm gonna I'm gonna take another whack at it at some point here. Doesn't that just kind of put you in the mood to talk about major seven chords and sharp elevenths? Anyway, next up we had a return to a very popular topic for Strong Songs. Actually, not just one popular topic, but two very popular topics. That's right, it was time for Strong Covers Volume 2! The second volume of Strong Covers focused on three covers of one band, three different artists' reinterpretation of famous Paul McCartney Beatles songs. There was Ray Charles' cover of Eleanor Rigby, Bobby McFerrin's cover of Blackbird, and this, the Earth, Wind, and Fire cover of Gotta Get You Into My Life. I learned a ton making this episode. There's always a lot of work to be done with these cover episodes, but that's because there's so much to excavate between the original recording and the cover. In the case I Gotta Get You Into My Life, I actually came in more familiar with the EWF cover, so I gained a new appreciation for McCartney's original off of Revolver, and I listen to that arrangement a lot now. I really dig it. It's a great use of horns. Another road where maybe I could see another kind of mind. Another notable thing about this episode was just how many covers I didn't have space for. I wound up putting a lot of extra stuff into a Patreon bonus episode that I'll probably put in the main feed at some point here, since it let me at least mention a few other great Beatles covers that I couldn't fit into the main episode. Among them, two different covers of Eleanor Rigby, Cody Fry's ultra-drama orchestral cover of the song which netted him a Grammy nomination. Father Mackenzie, writing the words of a sermon that no one will hear. Honestly, I still listen to this kind of regularly. This is a wonderful arrangement. Just beautiful stuff. Sex in the night when there's nobody there. 
completely opposite side of the stylistic coin, there's the Eleanor Rigby cover that I probably got the most emails about, the 1970 cover by the Australian rock band Zoot. really rocks in that scuzzy, hairy, early 70s kind of way, and it was fun to get to talk some about Zoot's arrangement. <laughs> Did Queen consciously quote that guitar riff eight years later in their song Bicycle Race? You be the judge. At any rate, Strong Covers Volume 2 was a lot of fun, and I look forward to talking about many more covers on the show in the future, since they really offer a cool way to separate a song from the original performer and consider the two separately, which always feels like it gives me a better understanding of both the song and the performer. Moving on, we got into our first interview of the year, a guitarist who you have definitely heard, even if you didn't know he was who you were listening to. I mean, you know as well as I did, going to to music school, it's like you spend so much time trying to do this thing that's really hard, which is like playing improvised music and other stuff, that to then not do it, if, if you never practice it again and then you're asked to, that's really challenging. So I wanted to make sure I, I didn't stop doing that. But all, but again, just philosophically, it's like, man, I spent so many, so much like blood, sweat and tears, like trying to learn how to do this thing. And a lot of what I do here during the day is whole notes and power chords and strumming and acoustic, which is great. It's like they're like different muscles, you know, like if you didn't use the other muscle, it atrophies. L.A. session guitarist Andrew Sinewick made for a great guest. He and I went to music school together down at the University of Miami back in the day, and I've followed his career over the years as he's become one of the most in-demand L.A. session musicians around. I learned a lot talking to him about the ins and outs of that kind of life, and I thought it was particularly interesting when he talked about the balance he always has to pursue between the straightforward, artful workmanship that he does for his day job and the creative outlets that he works to maintain for himself as an expressive, improvising musician. Also, I'll just say, you should totally follow him on Instagram. I'll link to him in the show notes, but he posts clips of his band doing live shows down in LA and they sound ridiculous. Next up, we traveled back to the late 1970s to talk about a classic track by a classic band, Just What I Needed by The Cars. I loved making this episode because of course I did. The Cars have long been one of my favorite bands, a cleverly arranged five-piece that in particular made great use of its creative and underrated guitarist, Elliot Easton. Another thing that made this episode fun was that it was secretly an episode about two Cars songs. The first and primary song was 1978's Just What I Needed, but every so often, I hit fast forward on the tape deck and jumped forward six years to 1984. 
Mixing in a discussion of 1984's You Might Think gave me a chance to look at the cars in transition and to get a sense of the ways that a band can change their sound over time. I'll always love the Cars 1978 self-titled debut, it's one of my favorite albums ever, but I love their synthier 80s stuff too. Moreover, I just thought it was fun to explore two different sides of the same band, since no band is defined by a single song or a single album or a single era. This was another one where I had some extra stuff that made its way into the Patreon feed, and I'll probably put that out in the main feed at some point as well. I definitely have a lot to say about the cars. And speaking of things I had a lot to say about, let's move on to the next episode of Year 4, a look at the music of The Legend of Zelda! Anyone who knows me knows that this episode was a long time coming, an opportunity for me to go deep into one of my favorite video game series and talk about a bunch of its incredible music, and in particular, how that music has grown and evolved over the decades. Few video game series have even existed for as long as The Legend of Zelda, and that longevity has given loads of composers an opportunity to take composer Koji Kondo's original themes and rework and reorchestrate them in ways that can be clever, exciting, or just plain old beautiful. There was so much in this episode, I was going back through it, and it's wild how many ideas, jingles, themes, and motifs I managed to get through in the course of an hour. If I had to pick one thing to highlight, it was getting to be the person to tell a bunch of folks about a hidden musical Easter egg in 2011's The Legend of Zelda Skyward Sword. So one of the oldest, most famous themes in this series is Zelda's lullaby, which sounds like this. Early on in Skyward Sword, you hear a new piece of music called the Ballad of the Goddess that sounds like this. Then pay close attention to this part. So if you just listen to the last part of that phrase, it sounds like this. And the thing is, if you play the Ballad of the Goddess backwards, that last part of the phrase is actually the first part of the phrase. And if you do that, this is what you get. <laughs> the fact that the Ballad of the Goddess is hiding a backwards version of Zelda's lullaby is just a particularly dramatic example of something that Zelda's composers do over and over with each game. They weave existing themes and ideas into and out of one another in ways that fit beautifully with how the series overall takes familiar narrative and design ideas and rearranges and reorchestrates them to find new melodies and harmonies. Really, this episode was so much fun to make. If you haven't listened to it, I think you'll enjoy it, even if you've never played a single Zelda game. After that episode, I figured, well, we're already in an introspective, numinous space, so why not embrace it with the next song of year four, Jimmy Webb and Glenn Campbell's Wichita Lineman! 
And I need you more than won't you And I want you for all And the Wichita lineman is still on the line. I'd been getting requests to do an episode on Wichita lineman for years, and as I confessed in the episode, I didn't actually know the song, despite getting lots of emails about it. Heck, at first, I thought that it was about a football player. Turns out, no, Webb's transcendent ode to the profound inner desires of an outwardly ordinary man is about a repair technician working on power and phone lines in rural Kansas. And I need you more than won't you. This episode began an unplanned foray into more lyrically oriented songs, and it was a strong gateway song since the music and lyrics so frequently line up a phenomenon I like to call musical lyrical consonants in the futile hope that someone somewhere will begin to use the term. This song is defined by one beautiful lyrical couplet. I need you more than want you, and I want you for all time. It's a truly shocking moment in the song, especially the first time Glenn Campbell sings it. An ordinary working song about a guy doing a job pivots and, in the space of a couple of bars and a couple of lines, becomes something entirely different. There are infinite possible ways to interpret those words, but in the end I wind up liking Webb's own interpretation, or at least not an interpretation, but how he articulates what he was trying to express, taken from Dylan Jones' book about the song. Quote, I was trying to express the inexpressible, the yearning that goes beyond yearning, that goes into another dimension when I wrote that line. It was a moment where the language failed me, really. There was no way to pour this out except to go into an abstract realm. And that was the line that popped out. I think the fascination with it comes from the fact that it just pushes the language a little bit beyond what it was really meant to express, because it could be deemed perfectly nonsensical. I need you more than want you, and I want you for all time. I mean, those are abstract concepts all jammed up together there. But that's because it's trying to express the inexpressible. And I need you more than want you. And I want you for all time. And the Wichita lineman is still on the line. You could just listen to it forever, couldn't you? I could listen to that song forever. But we got to keep moving. Year 4's next episode was the start of a new series, one I've been thinking about for a long time and was excited to kick off. Not strong songs or strong singers. It was time for Strong Solos Volume 1. Yes, Strong Solos was an enjoyable episode to make in part because it allowed me to talk about Eric Shankman's underrated guitar solo on Spin Doctor's song Two Princes, while also leaving time for an in-depth analysis of why tenor sax legend Sonny Rollins' solo on his song St. Thomas is so great. ¶¶ 
ostensible focus of this episode was theme and variation, so that was really just a lens through which to understand and appreciate improvisational phrasing, since any melodic framework involves some amount of repetition and development. Rollins' solo on St. Thomas is one of my favorite solos ever recorded for the playfulness with which he approached it, the joyful interplay between him and drummer Max Roach. How <laughs> oh, he carefully builds from these little rhythmic frog hops at the beginning to these jumping, halting staccato figures up higher on the horn. To these ridiculously long phrases full of cascading, peeling bebop lines. <laughs> just ridiculous. And then ultimately when the band transitions to swing, I mean he just blows the roof off the thing. It was the first time I've gotten to really talk about Sonny Rollins on Strong Songs, and Rollins has always been one of my guys. He was a player who, along with one or two others, shaped not only my sound and approach to the saxophone, but my entire understanding of how music worked. Next up, it was time to take on an entirely new style of music, one that I love but that I'm not actually all that familiar with. So in an effort to broaden my musical horizons and bring on some new voices from outside of Strong Songs, I brought on two tango experts for an episode I called Three to Tango with Alex Krebs and Andrew Oliver! I always like to break out of the Strong Songs formula, and this episode let me do that in a lot of different ways. I sat down with two local Portland tango experts, my buddy pianist Andrew Oliver and the great Alex Krebs, a Bandonian player, dance instructor, and owner of Tango Baratine on Foster in Southeast Portland. I learned so much making this episode about the instrument, style, history, and techniques of tango. I even took a tango class at Tango Baratine, which Alex taught, and that was very eye-opening. I am not a great tango dancer, but I do want to get better. Andrew and Alex just had so much great stuff to share, and in particular, I liked Alex's answer when I asked him to define what tango is. How would you define tango, given that it's a cross-disciplinary term? What what does tango mean to you? Um, it's the million-dollar question, Kirk. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think, I don't know, I guess for me, I there's a lot of honesty in it, um, in the sense that you, you can hide with words, but you can't really hide through, through how you move. How you you know, if you're shy, you're going to stand a certain way, and if you're arrogant, you're going to stand and speak in a certain way. And 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 through the dance, you really, you get to know someone on an honest level. So there's a lot of um, honesty in that. Also, getting to learn about yourself. Like I think through the dance, we really discover things about ourselves. You know, and I've seen it too through being around it long enough where people go through transformations, you know. Um, like for me, I was kind of more introverted and tango allowed me to find my extroverted self, I guess, while still maintaining some introverted tendencies. It taught me how to set set boundaries, set like walls. Tango has a lot more meaning um, once you get into it than I think people think on the surface. You tell people about tango and they think rose in the mouth, promenade, or mm -hmm. <laughs> scent of a woman, right? You know, this, you know it's, it's sort of, it's almost kind of a dramatic cliche or caricature, you know, which when you really get into it and do it, you discover it's not, it's more like doing, doing yoga or meditating really than, 
in some sort of comical dips and fishnet stockings and whatever. I mean, that's that, uh, you know, I heard the story that the conservative media in Buenos Aires wanted to get rid of tango, so they painted it sort of as a dance of pimps and whores, and 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 that just intrigued people even more about it <laughs> and how they really wanted to do it, right? So um, I think that cliche still stands in our minds, you know, whether it's through Hollywood or through dance, you know, watching these shows, Dancing mm-hmm. with the Stars mm-hmm. or whatever, people have a um, understandably confused notion of really what Argentine tango is um, in the dance and the music and, and everything. It was such a rewarding and interesting conversation, peppered throughout with some live demonstrations by Alex and Andrew, and it's got a hell of a playlist, too. It's curated by the two of them. I'll link to it again in the show notes. If you want an introduction to Argentine tango, go and listen to this episode. I think you'll really enjoy it. Strong Song does not stay in place, and next we return to the United States to the 1990s to take a look at a song by one of the most beguiling songwriters of that decade, Silent All These Years by Tori Amos! Silent all these years go by will I still be waiting for somebody else to these years became the second in an unplanned collection of lyrics-focused episodes this year, and it was a fitting second entry. Wichita Lineman begins plain spoken and then takes a surprise detour into abstraction, while Amos's lyrics are much more open to interpretation from the start. We communicate, your eyes focus on my funny lips shape. Let's hear what you think of me now, but baby, don't look up. The sky is falling. My favorite thing about making an episode about this song was hearing from listeners who wrote in with their own interpretations of the lyrics, in part because it enhanced my own understanding of what the song means when I hear it, and in part because this song was just obviously very important to a lot of people out there, and it was nice to hear from so many of you who were moved by it and by Amos's music more broadly. This song plays very effectively with vagueness and pronoun switching, I becomes you and you becomes me, a lot of times in this song. And in this final verse, I always felt as though the narrator were addressing a new person in her life. I love the way we communicate, your eyes focus on my funny lips shape. Let's hear what you think of me now, but baby don't look up. But of course, there's another interesting and actually pretty lovely interpretation, which is that the only thing that's changed is the narrator herself. Those years have gone by, and she's gained new insight into her life and her relationships, so she's able to view the judgmental, challenging figure from the early verses differently now and with more compassion. Here, she sings, take hold of my hand. There were loads of other cool things to talk about with this song. Amos's extremely particular piano arrangement, the sparse but perfectly picked accompanying instruments, the use of elevating clarinet harmonies. This was actually an episode where at one point I had to spend an hour going back through it and editing out the word beautiful because I'd said it too many times and it was losing meaning. Yeah. So- 
But in the end, it was the lyrics that stick with me about this song and the beautiful stories that I heard from all of you. Silent all these years Silent all these Silent all these years <laughs> Hard to keep going after that, but we must continue. One good singer-songwriter deserves another, so after finishing up with Tori Amos, we stepped back in time a couple of decades to talk about one of Tori's clearest inspirations, a 1974 song by a bona fide legend, Help Me by the Great Jody Mitchell! Well, this was a really fun one. I've listened to Joni Mitchell over the years, but I got to go really deep for this episode. I spent weeks listening through most of her albums from the 1970s, with extra time spent, of course, on Court and Spark, the 1974 record that features Help Me. This recording really benefited from a deep dive into the particulars because it kind of just flows over you. It flows like water, just rolling from chord and texture to the next chord and the next texture. But if you take the time to really figure out what everyone is doing, it's all pretty incredible and very sophisticated. In particular, I gained a new appreciation for Larry Carlton, who is playing guitar with saxophonist Tom Scott's band LA Express on this track. I just started taking weekly guitar lessons as I was beginning work on this episode, and I was struck by all these clever things that Carlton did with lateral slides between pentatonic shapes, which was something that I was just beginning to work on in my guitar lessons, and it's beautiful stuff. It gives him this very distinct and open sound. I was also just pretty happy with the fact that I was able to recreate his parts on top of the rest of the band as well as I was. These recreations take more work than you might realize, and so it's pretty satisfying when one really comes together. This episode also gave me a chance to really experiment with some of Joni's open guitar tunings. This one's in a C major 7 tuning, which isn't a tuning I'd ever played before, and it explains why the song is mostly major 7 chords. But as much as I came to appreciate the intricacies of the backing arrangement, I came to love Joni's vocals even more. I had a great time trying to recreate some of her singing, just down the octave of course, because I cannot sing like Joni Mitchell, and just really getting inside of her vocal phrasing, the seemingly weightless way that she conceives of melodic vocal phrasing, it's so cool. Help me, I think I'm falling in love too fast. It's got me hoping for the future and worrying about the past. Cause I've seen some hot, hot places come down with smoke and ash. We love our loving. Not like we love our freedom. No one phrases like that. No one ever has. No one ever will again. In that respect and so many others, Joni Mitchell is one of a kind. Next up, we completed our lyrical quadrilogy with a song seemingly custom-made to spark conversation about the subjective interpretations of songwriting, Wilco's Jesus Etc. 
tall buildings shake Voices escape singing sad, sad songs Tilted chords strung down your cheeks Bitter melodies turning your orbit around Easily among the most lyrically impressionistic songs I've ever talked about on Strong Songs, Jesus Etc. and its songwriter Jeff Tweedy helped me articulate something that I hope I return to every single time I talk about lyrics and poetic interpretation in the future on Strong Songs. And that's the idea that a song means what it means to you in the moment that you hear it, and that meaning is not written in stone along with the song, nor is it immutable. Meaning can change for you from experience to experience over a matter of years or a matter of minutes. It's just one of those things that's so obviously true, especially when I consider my own relationship to every song that I've ever heard. All of the songs that I've talked about on this episode, all the songs that I covered in year four, they each meant something different to me after I spent a couple weeks making an hour-long episode about them, but they also mean something different to me now than they did when I finished making that episode. It's so liberating to be able to put down the idea of there being a correct interpretation for any piece of art, and just sitting with the way that you feel about that art right now in this moment. Jesus Etc. was a perfect song for that kind of exercise since like the most elevated moments in Wichita Lineman, Silent All These Years, and Help Me, its meaning goes well beyond the words on the page. Songwriter Jeff Tweedy himself put it perfectly when speaking with Ezra Klein on his podcast a year earlier. That's why poetry exists. That's why songs exist. They say things that we can't say with linear language the way you describe it. It's just using the texture and the feel of language to, uh, I don't know, reach parts of who we are that our intellects don't really have much control over. Tell buildings shake Voices escape Singing sad, sad songs I have wanted to talk about funk on Strong Songs for ages, really since I began the show, and in year four, I finally took my shot. But the thing was, if I wanted to talk about funk, I figured I should probably start with the drums. And while I'm okay at drums, I am far from a funk drumming authority. Fortunately, I know a funk drumming authority, so I brought him on the show for Strong Grooves Volume 1! This episode gave me an opportunity to work with my old friend Russ Kleiner, who provided drumming examples and insights into the work of three legends of funk drumming, longtime James Brown drummer Clyde Stubblefield, the meter Zigaboo Modaleste, and the drummer on Aretha Franklin's seminal record Young, Gifted, and Black, Bernard Purdy. We spent a lot of time on Stubblefield's innovations in fatback drumming, so much there's actually enough for a whole bonus episode that I put in the Patreon feed, but Russ explained how fatback drumming works, what it means to call a groove a fatback groove, and I really enjoyed how he broke down the question and answer phrasing that he hears when he listens to one of Stubblefield's grooves. Personally, I also hear and think of fatback as very much a musical phrase with like a question and an answer where you have a two bar groove. First part of the groove is the question. Second part of the groove grounds it, answers it. So the question might be. And the answer. Question. Answer. Yeah! You 
have a lot of those longer two-bar phrases. It's extremely musical, which almost always goes along with some wonderful bass parts, guitar rhythm parts, etc. Russ recorded drum examples of the three songs that I focused on along with a ton of other classic funk tunes, and I had a great time building recreations off of those drum parts, since normally I just use my own drum parts which aren't nearly as good. I was actually pretty happy with how the Sissy Strut one came together in particular. I mean, it doesn't sound like the meters, and I don't sound like Leo on guitar, but it was fun to try to get close. I just crossfaded over to the meters version, just to be clear. I always learn a lot whenever I make an episode of Strong Songs, but I learn an extra amount whenever I have a guest expert come on, and I got a real kick out of learning drum stuff from Russ once again after all these years. Before we get into the final two episodes, I do just want to shout out the five Q&A mailbag episodes that I made in year four. Those episodes never make quite as much of a splash as the single song or single topic episodes. That makes sense. They're kind of a grab bag. They cover a lot of ground. They're so much fun to make, and I know that a lot of you like them. This year, I answered questions on all kinds of things. Sting's song Ghost Story, a mystery sound on Guns N' Roses' Welcome to the Jungle, how Mario Kart music works, what makes a song sound like it's from a musical, and what makes music from horror movies sound scary. The Quika, a very cool musical instrument that you've probably heard, even if you don't know what it's called, that I've been asked about in the past and that everyone should really know about. The appeal of lo-fi beats and why they're so popular right now. The rhythmic trickery on a ton of different songs that are in odd meters and some that aren't in odd meters, but just sound like they're in odd meters. Thanks to everyone who sent in a question. And if you haven't listened to those Q&A episodes yet, and I know some of you out there do skip the Q&As, well, you should listen to them. They're pretty fun. And if you ever have a musical question you'd like me to answer in the future, Send it to listeners at strongsongspodcast.com. Let's move onward to the final two episodes of year four. First up, we took a road trip across the upper Midwest to gaze upon the improbable and marvel in its ridiculousness. That's right, it was time for The Biggest Ball of Twine in Minnesota by Weird Al Yankovic! Well, this one was a lot of fun, wasn't it? And of course it was a lot of fun. I mean, it was Weird Al Yankovic. More than any one thing that I learned while making this episode, an episode about a song that I have loved since I was a kid, I came to have a new understanding of the story that this song tells, which helped me understand why I fell in love with it when I first heard it as a kid. That in turn got me listening to Gordon Lightfoot and Harry Chapin. It prompted a great thread of story songs over in the Strong Songs Discord server and just generally has me thinking more about songwriting as an explicit, long-form storytelling device. Biggest Ball of Twine arrives at the end of the album, and it starts so quiet and normal, for lack of a better word, especially if you're comparing it to all the shenanigans on the rest of the record, and then it just builds and builds until it's carried you along to this improbably epic threshold. And that's the joke. I mean, that's what's funny about it is that it's become so grand when you're talking about something so kitschy and silly, but also it really is grand in the end. Finally, at 7.37 early Wednesday evening as the sun was setting in the Minnesota sky. Out in 
the distance on the horizon it appeared to me like a vision before my unbelieving eyes I hope I was able to mirror that sense of joy and discovery in the episode itself. I did that using an approach that actually won't spoil here, just on the off chance that someone listening to this still hasn't listened to that episode. But if that's you, go listen. Also, in the time since publishing this Twineball episode, the film Weird, the Al Yankovic story came out, and it was just as absurd and funny as I was hoping it would be. Daniel Radcliffe, man, I didn't see this coming for him, but I love it. This is the biggest ball of twine in Minnesota. I tell you, it's the biggest ball of twine in Minnesota. As the year drew to an end, it was time for the 100th episode of Strong Songs, so I decided to take on something absurdly ambitious to tackle not just a song, but an album, and not just an album, but one of the most famous picked over albums ever made. I'm not going to draw it out and act like you don't know what it is since I just published the episode a couple of weeks ago. It's right next to this episode in the feed. Anyway, it's. The Dark Side of the Moon by Pink Floyd! Where do I even begin with this one? How do I pick a single thing to highlight on an episode like this? If you've listened to it, you know that that's basically impossible. This episode jumped from song to song and idea to idea across so much ground that it's pretty much impossible to pick a single thing to highlight. Making it definitely helped me hear all sorts of new things in this album. I thought I knew the dark side of the moon going in, but it turns out I did not really know the dark side of the moon. There were a lot of things that I didn't know. Most of the lyrics to most of the songs, for starters, I now know what every song in the dark side of the moon is actually about, where before it was kind of a blur to me. I hadn't really sat down and read along with the lyrics as I listened. I recommend doing that, by the way, if you never have. I also gained a new appreciation for engineer Alan Parsons and for how hard it must have been to to make a record that sounded like this in 1973. These days, you can do a lot of the techniques that he was pioneering with, you know, a keystroke and a couple of plugins. It's very easy to do it in a digital audio workstation, but he was working on an analog board. He couldn't do any of that. There wasn't even automation. He did all of the fades, all of the pans, all of that was by hand. And remember, this guy was in his mid-twenties. He wasn't some famous engineer with tons of resources. He was a young, hungry up-and-comer. I also came to appreciate David Gilmour, both in how much lead vocal work he did on this record, which I didn't actually know, and for his lyrical, soaring guitar playing. It was a lot of fun learning to replicate some of his signature Strat riffs, and in the process of doing that, I came to realize how, with him, it really wasn't about chops or showing off his technical prowess or even the cool effects that he was using on a given solo. Gilmour's strengths as a guitarist are totally down to his melodic sensibilities. One last thing I do want to mention about that album, and it concerns a lyric that comes at the very end. And if the dam breaks open many years too soon, and if there is no room upon the hill. And if the dam breaks open many years too soon. Now this was actually one of the lyrics that I did learn one of the first few times that I listened to this record, but I learned the wrong lyrics. I always heard it wrong. I thought Roger Waters was saying, and if the band breaks up and many years ensue. And if the 
I've always thought that was a kind of a poignant lyric, particularly given that Pink Floyd did eventually break up, and some of the stresses that were responsible for that can be traced back to the success brought on by The Dark Side of the Moon. And I wanted to share an unrelated email that I recently got from listener Joel, who wrote, I've just learned a great new musical word. Having learned so many cool musical terms from you, I wanted to share it, though you may already know it. I think your listeners would like it. The word is... Mondegreen. It refers to a mishearing of things said or sung, which happens in songs all the time. Mondegreen, what an incredible word, something there definitely should always have been a word for. It's a particularly potent Mondegreen there at the end of the dark side of the moon, one of so many that I've encountered in my life, and I'm so thankful that I finally know what to call that. But yeah, I mean, what else is there to say? I already said it all, so just go listen to that episode, episode 100, about the dark side of the moon. And that brings us here to the present moment, to the year four in review episode, which you are just finishing up listening to. And if I had to pick a single thing from this episode, it was the part where I talked about how much fun I had making episodes of Strong Songs in year four, and then I shared something from each of those episodes in order. Anyway, that'll do it for year four of Strong Songs. I will mostly be taking December off, though I am planning to have a few fun things in the feed and maybe even a new bonus episode, so stay tuned for that. Thank you all so much for listening this year, for supporting the show, spreading the word, and a huge thank you to everyone who's been a patron this year, who's sent in a donation. I say it all the time, it doesn't make it any less true. You really make it possible for me to do this, full stop. You make it possible for this show to exist, and it means so much that you support that reality. Next year, I'm going to be doing something different for a while. I have made 100 episodes of Strong Songs, which is a pretty wild amount of podcasting, especially given how much work a given hour of Strong Songs takes. I have learned a ton about music in the process of making this show, but I have made very little new music of my own. I've been pouring all my creative time and energy into Strong Songs, and I've reached what feels like a turning point. In order to keep my chops fresh, to make sure I have new things to talk about and get excited about on the show, I have to take some time to actually embrace my own creativity and make some music of my own. So that's what I'm going to do, and I'm going to take Strong Songs along with me as I do it. For the first half of next year, I'm going to take a break from making new full-length episodes of Strong Songs, and instead I'm going to spend some time making some new music. I have a few projects in the works that I've outlined for patrons over on the Strong Songs Patreon already, and I'm really excited about all of them, and I'm going to be sharing the process both in the Patreon bonus feed and also some in the main feed. I think it's going to be a really cool way to get inside the music production process in a different way to demonstrate how a bunch of things that I've talked about on the show actually apply in practical use and I'll also be resharing older episodes probably some new interviews and bonuses and that kind of thing in the feed over the course of those months. I don't really know how it's going to go. I don't know where I'm going to end up, but I'm excited to be going for it. Nervous also, but excited to be embracing the kind of freedom that's allowed by being listener supported. I'll be posting as I go over on the Strong Songs Patreon and really just a huge thank you to all of the patrons so far who've been supportive of this idea. It's really cool and just exciting to be trying something different. 
I always like to end the year by highlighting all the outro solos that I featured during the year, and here in year four we got an unusual amount of solos from listeners. So let's go through them all, starting with me, Kirk Hamilton on the electric guitar. Mel Carroll on the saxophone. Oren Confer on the harmonica. Tim Howes on the sax. Casey Atkins on guitar. And remember... This isn't a podcast about fashion. This isn't a podcast about film. This isn't about flipping houses or neighborhood gossip or how to fire a perfect kiln. This is a podcast about the notes in the air and the notes on the page. The sounds and the songs we all leave on the stage. This is Strong Songs, a podcast about music. Thanks for listening. See you in the new year.